welcome to A Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on neurodegenerative disease research so that you can stay up to date with the newest findings. Every month, our team of scientists will sort and organize the titles into themes and present shortened versions of the abstracts. We'll make sure to mention the title, the journal, the first author, and the last author for each publication. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast helpful. Hello everyone, Nyla here again for part two of Modifiable Risk Factors, published in June 2020. Full disclosure, I recorded the first episode not knowing that there would be some papers that would come out retroactively at the end of the month. And so these papers actually fall within the same categories as the previous episode, um, but there are just 12 more that I'll be covering today. So I've got five papers in what I've termed the lifestyle section. Then we have five papers on comorbidities and medical interventions, and then two papers on other risk factors that I couldn't neatly slot into a theme. So let's get started. Okay, so in the lifestyle section, I've grouped papers that explore what aspects of a healthy lifestyle may be protective against cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. So we'll start with two papers on exercise. The first examines longitudinal data of physical exercise to see how it influences the progression of AD biomarkers and cognitive function. The paper is called Physical Exercise and Longitudinal Trajectories in Alzheimer Disease Biomarkers and Cognitive Functioning. The first author is Stojanovic and the last author is Head, and this was published in Alzheimer's Disease and Associated Disorders. The associations of physical exercise with Alzheimer's biomarkers and cognitive function have previously been examined in cross-sectional observations, but the authors here wanted to study the effects of exercise on longitudinal change in AD biomarkers, AD being Alzheimer's, if you haven't listened to this before. So they examined whether individuals with higher baseline exercise showed less longitudinal change in AD biomarkers and cognitive function and whether APOE and or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, so BDNF, genotypes influenced the effects of exercise on longitudinal changes. At the beginning of the study, clinically normal individuals completed a questionnaire on physical exercise over the prior 10 years. Some participants had serial cerebrospinal fluid samples collected to examine amyloid beta-42, phosphotau-181, and total tau levels, and a larger number of participants underwent multiple assessments of amyloid PET imaging, and 327 participants underwent cognitive testing as well, including for measures of episodic memory, executive function, verbal fluency, and processing speed. The authors found that greater exercise was associated with slower decline in processing speed, but that baseline exercise did not impact the longitudinal change for any other outcomes. Neither APOE nor BDNF genotype robustly influenced the effect of exercise on the trajectories of cognitive decline or AD biomarkers. The authors conclude that self-reported physical exercise may be limited as a moderator of changes in AD biomarkers. Moving on, the second paper explores whether maternal physical exercise in rats can be neuroprotective for the offspring and gets into some potential disease mechanisms. 
or neuroprotective mechanisms rather. So this paper is entitled Protective Effect of Maternal Exercise Against Amyloid Beta Neurotoxicity in the Male Rat Offspring Cerebellum. The first author is Klein and the last author is Mate, and this was published in the Journal of Developmental Origins Health Disease. I really should check these abbreviations. One second. Okay, I'm back, and I probably could have figured that out myself. Uh, it's the Journal of Developmental Origins of Health and Disease. That makes more sense. So during pregnancy, intrauterine environment induced by exercise promotes long-lasting benefits to the offspring's health, possibly including resistance against chronic diseases in adult life. The study examined whether maternal exercise during pregnancy in rats can alter the long-term programming of the offspring's cerebellar metabolism, specifically by protecting against amyloid beta neurotoxicity. Female Wistar rats were trained to swim one week prior to mating and did so throughout pregnancy. When the offspring from these rats reached 60 days of age, amyloid beta oligomers were infused bilaterally in the brain ventricles, and the pathological result was measured two weeks later. Specifically, the authors measured parameters related to redox state, mitochondrial function, and the expression of proteins related to synaptic function. They found that maternal exercise during pregnancy prevented several changes, usually caused by amyloid beta oligomers, including increases in reactive species, inducible nitric oxide synthase immunocontent, tau phosphorylation, mitochondrial fission, and protein oxidation. These physiological effects of maternal exercise were still evident in the offspring's cere cerebellum in young adult life and may contribute to a protective phenotype against amyloid beta-induced neurotoxicity in male rat offspring. Okay, these next two papers relate to diet. The first explores whether self-reported caffeine consumption affects cognitive function, and if genetic variation plays a role in this association. The title is Caffeinated Coffee and Tea Consumption, Genetic Variation, and Cognitive Function in the UK Biobank. And this was published in the Journal of Nutrition by first author Cornelis and last author Morris. To investigate whether caffeine may benefit cognition, the authors examined the associations of habitual regular coffee or tea intake with cognitive function, additionally considering genetic variation in caffeine metabolism. They conducted a large study of white, middle-aged participants from the UK Biobank who provided biological samples and completed touchscreen questionnaires regarding sociodemographic factors, medical history, lifestyle, and diet. Habitual caffeine-containing coffee and tea intake was used to estimate caffeine intake through a self-report in cups per day. Between 97,000 and 445,000 participants also completed self-administered cognitive functioning tests using a touchscreen system or on-home computers. Multivariable regressions were used to examine the association between coffee, tea, or caffeine intake and cognition test scores, as well as interactions with a genetic-based caffeine metabolism score. The authors found that performance on most of their tests significantly decreased with consumption of one or more cups of coffee, and that tea consumption was associated with poor performance on all tests. 
They found no significant interactions with caffeine metabolism scores, suggesting that genetics does not mediate the relationship between caffeine consumption and cognition. The authors conclude that their findings do not support the hypothesis that habitual tea or coffee consumption improves cognitive function, but acknowledge that confounding variables may have affected their results. I hope that's the case, because I'm into my second cup of coffee here this morning. Alright, this next study examines the role of diet within Hispanic and Latino populations. It is entitled, Alternate Healthy Eating Index is Positively Associated with Cognitive Function Among Middle-Aged and Older Hispanics-Latinos in the HCHS-SOL. I think those are the study names. The first author is Estrella, the last author is Lamar, and this was again published in the Journal of Nutrition. Continuing with the potential influence of diet in cognitive function, this group examined whether a healthier diet quality associates with better cognitive function in middle-aged and older Hispanics and Latinos. They gathered data from over 8,000 Hispanics and Latinos using the alternate healthy eating index as a measure of diet quality with two 24-hour recalls to assess dietary intake. Global cognition score was derived from summing the results from tests of verbal learning and memory, verbal fluency, and processing speed. The authors used linear regression models to examine associations between the diet quality scores and cognitive function, adjusting for sociodemographic factors, daily energy intake, type 2 diabetes, smoking, and depressive symptoms. They found that... Compared to the lowest quintile, so that's the lowest fifth, of healthy eating scores, global cognition significantly increased between the second to fourth quintiles. There were also some improvements specifically within verbal learning and verbal memory scores, but no associations were found with verbal fluency or processing speed. Among the different components of the alternate healthy eating index, adequate consumption of vegetables, whole fruits, and alcohol were each associated with better cognitive function. It's good news. All right, the last paper in this category reports on two longitudinal studies that examined healthy lifestyle more generally by measuring multiple aspects, including exercise and diet. It is called Healthy Lifestyle and the Risk of Alzheimer Dementia, Findings from Two Longitudinal Studies. And the first author is Dana, the last author is Morris, and this was published in Neurology. The authors used data from the Chicago Health and Aging Project and the Rush Memory and Aging Project to quantify how healthy lifestyle impacts AD risk. They defined a healthy lifestyle score ranging from 0 to 5 based on non-smoking greater than 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous intensity physical exercise, light to moderate alcohol consumption, a Mediterranean diet measure, and engagement in late-life cognitive activities. When both cohorts were followed up at around six years, multivariable adjusted models showed that the pooled hazard risk of Alzheimer dementia across the two cohorts was 0.73 per each additional health, healthy lifestyle factor. Compared to participants with 0 to 1 healthy lifestyle score, the risk of Alzheimer's decreased by 37% in those with a score of 2 to 3, and by 60% in those with 4 to 5 healthy lifestyle factors. These findings suggest that a composite healthy lifestyle score is associated with a substantially lower risk of Alzheimer's dementia. 
That's all for this section. So moving on to comorbidities and medical interventions. I had previously called this medical comorbidities, and then Anusha pointed out to me that all comorbidities are medical. So in this category, I clumped papers that either look at different comorbidities related to Alzheimer's disease or look at the potential effects of pharmacological treatments. We'll start with one that looks at whether lowering cholesterol with statins can reduce the risk of dementia. The paper is called Statin Exposure and the Risk of Dementia in Individuals with Hypercholesterolemia. First author is Lee, last author is Kang, and this was published in the Journal of Internal Medicine. The study examined the association between statin exposure and dementia risk in individuals with hypercholesterolemia. So I guess uh, high cholesterol. The authors used data from the NHIS slash HEALS database between 2002 and 2015 and classified subjects into statin exposure and statin non-exposure groups according to medication possession ratio. Using Cox proportional hazards regression and adjusting for confounders, they investigated whether statin exposure associates with dementia as defined by primary diagnostic dementia codes. During a median follow-up period of 11.7 years, 711 cases of dementia occurred, accounting for 11.5% of the total study population. Based on the resulting hazard ratios, hypercholesterolemic individuals that were exposed to statin had a reduced risk of overall dementia and AD-related dementia in both sexes, and a reduced risk of uh, different types of dementia in women compared to subjects who were not exposed to statins. Okay, this next study looked at whether lowering vascular risk, which decreases the prevalence of cardiovascular disease and dementia, can preserve general cognitive performance when achieved by pharmacological treatment. The title is Pharmacological Treatment of Increased Vascular Risk and Cognitive Performance in Middle-Aged and Old Persons, Six-Year Observational Longitudinal Study. The first author is Van Eersel, and the last author is Isaacs, and this was published in BMC Neurology. In this longitudinal observational study, the authors compared the change in cognitive performance in persons with and without treatment of vascular risk factors. Around 250 participants with a mean age of 58 years were treated for increased vascular risk during a mean follow-up period of 5.5 years, and nearly 1,700 participants with a mean age of 50 years did not receive treatment, acting as the control group. Cognitive performance measured three times during the follow-up was done so in two different tests. The cognitive performance in both groups improved from the first test to follow-up tests. After adjusting for demographics and vascular risk, the change in cognitive performance was not significantly different between the treatment and control group, despite the fact that at baseline, the treatment group was older, had a higher treatable vascular risk, and worse cognitive function. Similar results were found in matched samples and after adjusting for propensity score, which was done to account for the fact that treatment allocation was non-randomized. So overall, uh, although it seems like there's no statistical difference, because the treatment group uh, started out worse, 
These findings suggest that lowering vascular risk in general pre preserves cognitive performance. That was a bit of a confusing one, um, might be worth actually reading. Okay, so next we'll turn to thyroid hormone levels. So an association between thyroid dysfunction and AD has previously been reported, but this next study examined the effects of mild thyroid dysfunction within the normal range of thyrotropin, this is also known as thyroid stimulating hormone, uh, on Alzheimer's disease. So this paper is called Relationship Between Thyroid Hormone Levels and the Pathology of Alzheimer's Disease in Euthyroid Subjects. First author is Choi, last author is Kim, and this was published in Thyroid. The study evaluated the association between thyroid hormones and AD pathology in 69 euthyroid subjects, meaning that they had a thyrotropin level between 0.5 and 4.5 um, micro-international units per liter. Sorry, that took me a second. So the subjects underwent 18F florbeptabin. Again, I struggle with these names all the time. Uh, PET imaging, and the levels of serum-free thyroxine and thyrotropin were quantified using radioimmunoassay. Cognitive function was assessed using neuropsychological tests, and differences in cerebral amyloid beta burden were compared between high to normal and low normal thyrotropin groups. After adjusting for age, sex, educational level, and neuropsychiatric inventory scores, the authors found that cerebral amyloid beta burden was significantly higher in the high to normal thyrotropin group compared to the low to normal group. In contrast to thyrotropin, serum-free thyroxine levels were negatively correlated with amyloid beta burden and positively associated with cognitive function. These results indicate that thyroid hormone concentrations were associated with AD pathology in euthyroid subjects and suggest that AD may occur even in individuals with high to normal thyrotropin levels. Okay, we're going to shift gears here and we'll turn from the thyroid to bone density with this next paper looking at whether bone mineral density loss is related to AD pathology. So this paper is entitled... Voxel-based morphometry reveals a correlation between bone mineral density loss and reduced cortical gray matter volume in Alzheimer's disease. The first author is Takano, the last author is Taki, and this was published in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience. So decreased bone mineral density, or also BMD, has been associated with reduced cognitive function and increased risk of AD, but evidence of a direct relationship between osteoporosis and AD in humans is lacking. The authors evaluated the relationships between BMD and the cortical volumes of brain regions vulnerable to AD using voxel-based morphometry so as to investigate if bone loss is associated with AD. Around 150 elderly participants who complained of memory disturbance underwent structural magnetic resonance imaging and dual energy x-ray absorptiometry. When the results were adjusted for subject age, gender, total brain volume, and mini mental state examination scores, voxel-based multiple regression analysis showed significant correlation between BMD loss and regional gray matter volume decline in the left percuneus, which is a brain region important in Alzheimer's disease. 
The author suggested that this is evidence of bone-brain crosstalk and that controlling bone mineral density factors could contribute to cognitive function and help prevent AD. The last paper in this section reports on a new method for tracking the progression of and interaction between co-occurring diseases, so in this case it's on Alzheimer's and epilepsy. And the paper is called Temporal Phenotyping for Transitional Disease Progress, an Application to Epilepsy and Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Kim, and the last author is Jiang, and this was published in the Journal of Biomedical Informatics. So AD is considered a comorbidity of epilepsy, but epilepsy also occurs more frequently in patients with AD than those without, and it is unclear how these interact as each disease progresses. To this end, the authors developed a transitional phenotyping method that is based on both longitudinal and cross-sectional relationships between diseases and or medications. This was done by using a skipgram model to represent co-occurred disease or medication in the cross-sectional approach, and for the longitudinal approach, each patient was represented as a transition probability between medical events, and these were formed into groups of medical events that developed together. The information from both approaches was then synthesized to derive high-risk transitional patterns. The authors applied their method to disease progress from epilepsy to Alzheimer's in a cohort of 600,000 patients. Their results suggested a causal relationship between epilepsy and later onset of AD and identified five epilepsy subgroups with distinct phenotypic patterns leading to AD. These findings are preliminary, but suggest that the proposed method is an effective approach for risk factor analysis. And that's it for the comorbidities section. All right, this final section is just two papers that I listed under other risk factors, as I didn't know how to fit them in. So the first one is on multiple childbirths. This is also called multiparity, uh, and how this might increase the risk of Alzheimer's and related cognitive decline, and what the pathological links might be. So this paper is entitled Multiparity, Brain Atrophy, and Cognitive Decline. The first author is Young, or that's perhaps Zhang, and the last author is Li. This was published in Frontiers of Aging Neuroscience. The study examined the relationships of multiparity with cerebral amyloid beta deposition, brain atrophy, and white matter hyperintensities. Over 200 older women with or without mild cognitive impairment were included, and underwent clinical and neuropsychological assessments in addition to both PET and MRI imaging. The authors found that participants with grand multiparity, so that's over five childbirths, had significantly reduced adjusted hippocampal volume and atrophy related to Alzheimer's disease and brain aging, even after controlling for potential confounders. The mini mental state exam score was also significantly lower in these participants, but there was no association with glo global amyloid beta retention, amyloid beta positivity rate, or white matter hyperintensity volume, regardless of covariates. Overall, the findings suggest that grand multiparity may increase dementia risk or cognitive decline by aggravating amyloid-independent hippocampal or cortical atrophy.
The last paper is an epidemiological study that compares the prevalence of Alzheimer's and related disorders. I'll refer to this uh, throughout this abstract as ADRD by county and by geographical location in Ohio. So this paper is entitled Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorders Prevalence Differs by Appalachian Residents in Ohio. The first author is Wing and the last author is Ryder. And this was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. So the authors wanted to estimate the prevalence of Alzheimer's and Related Disorders, ADRD, in the Appalachian counties of Ohio, as these may have a greater burden of underdiagnosed cases. They wanted to determine whether there is a difference by geographical location, so uh, by Appalachian versus non-Appalachian, or by rural versus urban location, and as well whether there are differences across time. To do so, they used 10 years of public files from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to estimate county-level prevalence of ADRD in Ohio. Negative binomial regression was used to estimate prevalence overall by Appalachian versus non-Appalachian designation and by rural versus urban classification. The authors found that prevalence of ADRD significantly varied by both Appalachian residents and rural status. Before adjusting by county-level demographics and comorbid comorbidities, the prevalence of ADRD in urban Appalachian counties was 1-3% to lower than in urban non-Appalachian counties, whereas rural Appalachian counties had 2-3% higher prevalence compared to rural non-Appalachian counties. These differences were accentuated after adjustment, with a consistently higher prevalence ratio in rural Appalachian counties, but with variation across the study period for urban counties. The authors argue that this potential difference by Appalachian region is an important consideration for the availability of services and the subsequent delivery of care for Alzheimer's and related disorders. All right, that brings me to the end of this episode. I hope that was short and sweet and easily digestible, and I look forward to speaking to you guys again soon. Bye. That's it for this episode. A huge thank you to the team that is working on sorting, summarizing, and scripting these abstracts, as well as the operations behind Aminder. The music is from Journey of a New Transmitter by Nusha Kamesh, musician and fellow scientist, and a member of the Aminder team. You can find the original piece and her other music on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh or on her YouTube channel, AK Music. Interested in joining the team? Give us a shout! We can always use help with content development, podcast editing, advertising, and you can be part of a new and exciting venture. Reach us by email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter. Oh, we're also on Facebook now. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list if you want access to the bibliography for each of our episodes. The references come with timestamps. Hmm, timestamps. So you can more easily locate the paper that caught your interest. Check our notes below for details on how to sign up. And very close to this, you'll also find a link to our feedback survey. Because, yeah, your feedback matters to us. So please, pretty please, let us know how we can make this podcast a better tool for you. And last but not least, thank you for tuning in with us. 
And on this note, we hope you found our podcast useful and accessible. Until next time.